and to sing like I preach, <laughs> just when you think they're done, they keep on going. <laughs> like it. Got to keep everyone on their toes around here. Being Labor Day, I realized that the thoughts of many men and women at uh, this time of year turn to football. <laughs> That's right. In, a, in, a, yeah, in addition to the Angels' pursuit for a playoff, we've got football. And so with that in mind, fellas, isn't this a great time of year? But, uh, and ladies. With that in mind, the following story is told. Mike Lawlin, who was a former Dolphins linebacker, was asked by his college coach, uh, at the time was uh, Shug Jordan of Auburn University, to recruit young players. And he said, Mike, and he said, uh, you know, would you do some recruiting for me? He said, sure, coach. What kind of player are you looking for? He said, well, Mike, there's that kind of player when you knock him down, he stays down. And Mike said, well, coach, that's not the guy we want. He said, that's right, Mike. He goes, you know, when there's that other kind of player, you knock him down, he gets back up. You knock him down again, he gets back up. He goes, is that the kind of player we want? He goes, no. That's not the player we want, Mike. He said, well, coach, he goes, you know, you know, and then, Mike, there's that player. You knock him down, he gets back up. You knock him down, he gets back up. You knock him down, he gets back up. You knock him down, he keeps getting back up. He goes, that's the guy we want, isn't it, coach? He goes, no, no, no. And this guy's like, Mike, you know, coach, what, what guy do we want? He goes, Mike, I want the guy knocking everybody down. You know, it's, it's so easy to miss the obvious, and that's exactly the message that Jesus was trying to convey to his audience in Luke chapter 17. If you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Luke 17. In this passage, Jesus answers a question by the religious leaders as to when and where God's kingdom would be established. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Luke 17. You'll find it starting in verse 20. We read these words. And in this particular section, we're going to deal with Jesus' discussion as it, re, as it relates to God's kingdom now and then. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Said, and he said to the disciples, The day shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. He says, And they will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, it shall also happen in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and they were drinking. They were marrying and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking. They were buying and selling. They were planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It would be just the same on that day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take, take them away. And likewise, let not one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life shall preserve it. 
I tell you on that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also will the vultures be gathered. In this particular passage, Jesus talks about his kingdom. He talks about it now and then in an immediate sense and also in a future sense. And the teaching by Jesus is a direct answer. If you'll notice in verse 20, it was a question that was asked by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. God's people throughout their history, to better understand the question, had certain expectations that we need to recognize throughout the entire Old Testament. God had promised most, and probably the most notable place was the Abrahamic covenant, that God's people would be gathered to himself in God's place and would be under God's rule. And so the kingdom of God related to the fact that, you know, God's people would possess the promised land and live under God's rule. And that really, if you think about it, is the fundamental definition of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And yet throughout the Old Testament, if you do a survey as as you go through it, you'll notice that even though they experienced tastes of this, they never experienced it in their fulfillment. And there was a history that went along with the nation of Israel. They would be in subjection to God's authority. They would be obedient and then they would be disobedient. And then when they were disobedient, God would send people into their, into their life to oppress them so that they would be broken, they would be humbled, they would recognize that they had forgotten God. And the cycle continued to go on. God would bless them. God said, don't forget me in the blessings. And sure enough, they would forget them. And as they forgot them, God would bring people into their life who would oppress them. And then when they were broken and in captivity, they would cry out to God for his mercy and they would remember God again. And then God would bless them again. And then God said, now don't forget what you just learned. You're gonna, you know, you're, there's a danger for forgetting me and they will forget him again and then God would oppress him again and then he would crush them again and they would be broken and they would cry out to God again and I'm thinking wow that's 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 the history of my life and and probably for many of us you know God blesses us we forget God's blessings he says Chuck I'm going to warn you don't forget me oh no I'll never forget you and sure enough Deuteronomy 8 we forget everything that God's done and God says oh you know I got to get your attention again and so then God crushes us he humbles us he brings us back to himself he restores us he sets us back up he blesses us again and sure enough we forget him again and on and on the cycle goes and so by this time there had been this huge huge amount of time when the nation of Israel had experienced this cycle of, of activity with God and there was a 400 year silence where God says you know what I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to prepare the stage for the ultimate of of my plan which is to send the ultimate savior into the world and so this time you've got to recognize that there is a long history and there's a pattern here that had developed and they were looking for the promised one the one that God said would redeem them the ultimate savior the coming of messiah and God, you know, he, he broke forth from the silence and he peeled back the, the, the curtain of eternity and he sent Jesus Christ into the world, you know, born, born of a woman, born under the law. And there was a perfect time in the fulfillment of God's timing. Jesus came onto the scene. Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Savior. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus enters the scene in human history the ultimate Savior, God's chosen one. There's a name that was given to him that's above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. And as we look at this, you know, the the, the religious leaders are waiting for this day 
and saying, okay, you know, is this the time? Is this the place? They had thought many of them would be their deliverer, but now they're going, okay, is Jesus really the one? And so they asked the question, is it now the time, God, where we will be under your rule and your place as your people at this moment in time? And that's the question that was asked. But the question isn't as innocent as it may appear. And we're going to see that in a moment because 30 years after Jesus came, you know, in those humble circumstances to Bethlehem, he began to say the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark's gospel, Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ is the bringing near of God's kingdom. Now, Jesus never said that the ultimate fulfillment had taken place, but that the kingdom of God was near in him. In fact, Matthew's gospel repeatedly uh, describes Jesus' ministry as preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And so the point is this, the kingdom came in Jesus Christ and will come in its fullness at his return. And that really gives us the outline that we see before us in this passage. And so we're going to look at it from the standpoint of God's kingdom now and then God's kingdom then. God's kingdom in the immediate sense and then God's kingdom in its ultimate future fulfillment. And in verses 20 and 21, we see that, you know, in a very sobering way as he answers their question, we see that there is a great distance, there's a great distance of God's kingdom from those who refuse to believe. He says, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. There's two words and a phrase, a word and a phrase that stand out to help us understand this great distance of God's kingdom from those who refuse to believe. The first word is the word that we see in verse 20 which says, with signs to be observed. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. This is the only time that this word is used in all the New Testament. The verb form is only used six other times. And I want to point out four of them to help us understand exactly what this word conveys. If you'll turn back with me to Mark chapter 3, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Mark chapter 3, we see the same word is used that's used again by Jesus in this passage. In Mark 3 verse 2. If you remember in verse 1, in Luke's gospel, we find the same thing. It says, he entered, speaking of Jesus, into the synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. Remember, they had planted him there. And they were watching, speaking of the religious leaders, they were watching, that word again is observing. They were observing him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Why? In order that they might accuse him. Jump back to Luke's gospel in chapter 6 and look at verse 7. We find the same word again is used in the same type of context. In in Luke chapter 6 verse 7, And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely or observing him to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find, excuse me, a reason to accuse him. Jump up to uh, chapter 20 in Luke's gospel in verse 20. In verse 20, we're told, and they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governor. 
This gives us enough of a feel for what's going on. If you go back to Luke chapter 17, as you can see from these passages, the word always has some sinister meaning to it. There was always a hostile meaning behind it. They were observing him with hostility. They were observing him with cynicism. They were observing him not to try to discern truth, but they were observing him in order to accuse him of making false statements. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior. They didn't believe that He was the ultimate Messiah of God. They didn't believe He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. They didn't believe that He was the King who would usher in the kingdom of God. They were trying to prove that He was a liar and that He was an imposter. And so when they asked the question, it wasn't to be asked of Him, just like it wasn't to be asked to see if He would really heal the man with the withered hand in order that they may praise God, for that was one of the signs that God had always told them that when Messiah came, Savior came, He would do these wonderful signs. They weren't looking for that. They were looking for a way to discredit Him from what He was saying. And as a result, there's much application for us today, and that is this. The kingdom of God is at a great distance from those who live their lives cynical and skeptical skeptical to the claims of Christ. The kingdom of God is not near. The kingdom of God is not at hand to those who do not have open hearts to examine the evidence that's laid out before them as to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is far from people who have skepticism and cynicism in their hearts. But the kingdom of God is near to those who are seeking truth and seeking God. But he recognized they weren't seeking the truth. And he's saying, you're asking about God's kingdom? Let me tell you something, fellas. The kingdom of God is far from you. It's far from you. The clear warning is that the kingdom of God will not be seen by those who are critical or hostile to the truth of God. Those who reject Jesus Christ, those who reject the evidence, those who reject the signs, those who reject ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God will never be close to them. There'll be a great distance, as we saw in Luke 16, there'll be a great chasm between those who receive Christ and those who reject him. The difference is the difference between ultimately being in God's kingdom in heaven for all of eternity and being hell away from him for all of eternity. It's a huge gap. It's a huge distance. See, the religious folks of Jesus' day, as many today, stumbled over Jesus because they wanted him to be something else other than what they expected. People today hate Jesus because he's too narrow-minded. People today hate the gospel because it doesn't allow room for other belief systems. People hate the narrow way. People hate the cross. And the reason they hate the cross is because the cross is exclusive. Those who come to the cross and trust in Christ are saved. Those who reject Him are eternally damned by God and the wrath of God will be upon them. That's the reason people hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the the reason why militant groups that are around this world hate the message of Christianity because they understand the exclusive nature of it. They understand more so than God's people understand how exclusive the nature of the message is. There is no other way to heaven but through Him. There is no other name by which men can be saved other than Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Savior. There's no other way. And so they were asking where the kingdom was, not because they wanted to know, but they wanted to disprove that Jesus was who He claimed to be. They hated Him. People hate Jesus today for the same reason. 
Why do you think so many people mock the name of Jesus? As I've mentioned many times, I hear people mock Jesus' name and you, know, and you hardly ever hear anybody mock anybody else's name. Because there's something about that name that God has put in the hearts of every human being. The truth of the knowledge of who He is. And people don't like it. If you recall, Jesus had already warned that seeking signs was for an evil generation. He said those who seek signs will never see any signs. And the reason for it is that the greatest sign of all is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've got 2,000 years of human history that validate and affirm and confirm that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who walked this earth, who did mighty deeds... He was a mighty prophet, people say, mighty teacher, people say, but the Bible says he's a mighty God, that he walked among us, and he did these mighty signs, and he died upon the cross so that you and I would never have to suffer the consequence of sin for those of us who would receive and and, and, and respond positively to God's ultimate gift, this sacrifice. He rose again from the dead, the sign of Jonah, after three days, he would be raised again from the dead. He is alive today. He is Lord of Lord. He is King of Kings. And one day the government shall be upon his shoulders, but in the here and the now, it is only those who trust in Christ that get to experience the kingdom of God. Which brings us to the next point, and that's this. You know, God's final sign to man is Jesus. And that's Hebrews, 11, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Jesus is the final sign to man. That's clearly what it said. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Who created the universe? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible clearly says Jesus Christ created the universe. Who is Jesus? He is God. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. There is something about that name. And the point is, the kingdom of God... As you go back to Luke 17, notice the other phrase that stands out. He says, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And in some, you know, translation it has is is within you. And and, and the word entos always has to do with group or collective. And what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is in your midst. And that is an accurate translation. So I want you to stop and think about what's happening here. The religious leaders are asking Jesus about the coming kingdom. He's saying to them, listen, you know what? The kingdom of God is basically far from you because you're not asking about truth. You're not seeking truth. You're not looking to see if I am who I claim to be. You're trying to prove that I'm not. So therefore, you will never see me for who I am. You don't have to run around looking at where the kingdom's going to be established. It's not like some political reign where you say, oh, you know, the kingdom's going to take place in Jerusalem or in Rome or in this place or that place. No, the kingdom of God is standing in your midst. The kingdom of God is right before your eyes. I'm standing in front of you. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be what? Born again. It's not a physical kingdom here and now. It's a spiritual kingdom here and now. For those who are born again, you're in God's kingdom. 
We are God's people. For those who have been born again, we are inherited by, we, we are adopted in the family of God. We inherit everything that God has for us. He says to those who receive Christ, you become children of God to those who believe in His name. You then and I then become a member of God's family. We are God's people. We are meeting in God's place. We are under God's authority. We are tasting today just a sample of the ultimate kingdom of God. When we walk in together collectively as God's people, we are experiencing just a taste of what God has for us in the future when we are under God's reign. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, God's will isn't being done on earth from the standpoint that it ultimately will be done when there's a theocracy that's established and Jesus prevails and he rules from this earth. We're going to talk about that because that has to do with the then. But now he's saying that, you know what, though? But God's kingdom is established in your heart and my heart who have trusted in Christ and who live in obedience. And God is our God and we are his people. We live in his place. We are under his rule. Are you under his rule? Are you obedient to His commandments? If you love God, you obey His commandments. If you love God, you follow out what He tells you to do. If you love God and you're doing something that's wrong, you'll stop doing it and you'll do that which is right. If you love God and He calls you to do something, you'll say, yes, yes, Lord, I'm here at your service. I'm here at your command. I am your servant. You are my king. This is your place. I am your servant. You tell me what you want me to do, and that's what I'm going to do. See, that wasn't the heart of the Pharisees. They wanted him to be what they wanted him to be. And so many people today have created a God or gods in their own image, in their own likeness. But that's not the God of the universe. That's not our creator God. Our God created us in his image and in his likeness. And sin distorted that image to where he has redeemed those of us who have trusted in him. We become more like Jesus every day as we live more and more in obedience to his demands of our life. So now he basically answered that question. He turns his attention and our attention to the disciples. And now he talks about the future kingdom. And he said to his disciples, the day shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And he's saying that, and then he'll say, look here, look there, don't go away, don't run after them, for just as the lightning when it flashes out in one part of the sky shines to the other, so the son of man will be in his day. And he's talking about the spiritual deception that will be present in the days that lead up to and include the day that Jesus returns to establish his earthly kingdom. And notice the desire that the the disciples will have. He said, you know what, there's a day that's coming where you will long, you will have a strong desire to see the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And Jesus was warning them. He says, you know, I'm going into Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to raise from the dead. I'm going to ascend into heaven. And you know what? And and I'm going to be gone. But there are going to be days where you would long for me to come back. And you know what I'm finding as I go through life, and probably some of you are as well, is that the longer that you live and the more heartache that you see in this life and the more you realize that, you know what, the things of this earth do grow, you know, strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, there's something wrong in, in, the, in the spiritual walk of God's people when we think that hanging on to this life is, is going to be somehow better than what God has to offer when Jesus returns. 
I mean, it's just really ridiculous. And it's funny because, I, you know, I, I've struggled with the fact that I think more of, of, of the Lord coming back, as I've mentioned, you know, in the middle of my cancer treatment, in the middle of an MRI, in the middle of a CT scan, and all this stuff that's going on. You know, I'm thinking more about the Lord's return. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, you start thinking about that stuff when you're in the midst of all that, you know. And, and, and what we need to recognize and understand that I don't care how great a day that you're having... It pales in comparison to what God has in store for His people in His place under His rule. And I love that. And I look at this and, they, and they're saying, man, you're going to long for this. He said, there's going to be a day coming. I'll tell you what. And you read through the scriptures and you read through the book of Acts and you see the price that God's people paid to proclaim the name of Jesus. And you realize there were many days they were longing for Jesus to return. Their persecution and their affliction... The, the pain and the anguish and the suffering that they endured for His namesake. Many of us just endure pain because it comes with sin nature. It comes with just being here on earth. But with those who are enduring pain and affliction and suffering because they were preaching the gospel, say, Lord, even so, come quickly. I'm ready. He says, you're going to have a desire to see me return. And because of that strong desire, he says, there's going to be a deception. And the deception is going to be, hey, you know what? Oh, here he is over here. Oh, no, here he is over there. And you're going to want that to happen so bad that there is going to be a tendency to get off track and start to believe into the lies. All throughout church history, crazy people have stood up and said, you know what, Jesus is coming back this year. Well, do you read the Bible? I mean, you know, the word of God is so clear. It says, you know what, no man knows the hour of the times. That's ordained for God to know and only him to know. Now, are there signs of His coming? Yes, there are signs of His coming. But, you know, when people set dates, and what happens is they, dis- they you know, there's a huge disillusionment and a huge disappointment. All throughout, I mean, you could read through a, a variety of movements and schisms and isms and disms and thatums and, you know, and things that go on. And, you know, they would say, you know, Jesus is coming back and people would go and they'd sell all their stuff and they'd go sit on a hilltop and they'd wait for Him to come. And, you know, and they're looking at their watch and He's not coming. He didn't come. When's He coming? He's not coming. He didn't come yet. Oh, He's late. According to who? Well, I mean, you know, according to you because you said He's coming. He didn't say He was coming. He said He's coming. He didn't tell you when. He didn't tell you now and so you know they get all disappointed and what happens is the world starts to look at people who say these things like they're nuts and it really you know it, 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 it diminishes the truth and the power of God's word because now they start to listen to human beings who really are crazy for doing that see God God is is patient he's not late He's not, you know, it's not that he's late. He's coming on his timetable. And in the meantime, you know, I, I, I just, and here's what troubles me about people that spend a whole lot of time studying prophecy. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying because, you know, as soon as I say something, people go to one extreme or the other. And listen to what I'm saying in a balanced approach. People that spend a lot of time trying to figure out when Jesus is coming, my only concern at that point is this. Aren't we supposed to be redeeming the time wisely by doing what he's called to do, what what we're supposed to be doing in the meantime? What are we supposed to be doing? If you read Acts chapter 1, it says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there staring up into space? This same Jesus, just the way that he left, he's going to come again. But in the meantime, you'll be given power to be what? To be my witnesses. 
In the meantime, you are to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the world, and you are proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. You are to repent if you want to enter into it and receive Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, power of His resurrection, receive Him as Lord and Savior as the only hope that you ever have to get into the kingdom of God. That's what we're supposed to be doing in the meantime, not spending a whole bunch of time arguing, debating on when we think Jesus is coming. But there's so much of that that goes on in Christendom, it breaks my heart because we could be spending the same amount of time, effort, and energy to reach people who need to hear the gospel. Why? Because this is what he says, and I want you to see this very clearly. He says, don't run around and buy into all this. He's coming here, he's coming there, he's coming next week, he's coming the week after, you know, do this, do that, and the other thing. He's saying, you know why? Because there will be a display that will be unheard of throughout human history. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. It will not be a secret. It will be evident. The whole world will see Him. The lights of the heavens will be dimmed. And the only light that will be visible will be Jesus returning to establish His kingdom. No one will have to search no one will have to look. No one will have to run over here or run over there or this part of the world or that part of the world or this movement or that movement. When Jesus returns, everyone will see it. So we don't have to worry about when. We need to be busy doing what He has called us to do now. His return will take care of itself in God's timing. Meantime, get busy doing what God has called us to do. And I'll tell you, as we look at this, you'll see why. But he tempers this and says, but you know what? But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, before Jesus could come and establish his kingdom, he came to give his life a ransom for many. Before Jesus could be exalted into glory... He was humbled and he took on the form of a bond servant made into the image and the likeness and the appearance of men so that he could give his life on the cross so that he could be raised again from the dead and so that he can be exalted and be glorified as God's word predicts and tells us. If you remember even his trial before Pilate, he told the religious leaders, and you shall see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man shall appear. And they all ripped their clothing and said, Blasphemy! You're, fulfill, you're claiming to be the Savior. Yeah? What's your point? That's what I've been trying to tell you, but your eyes will not hear, your eyes will not see, and your ears will not hear because you have hard hearts. He's saying, but before that day comes, Jesus would have to die and be raised again. He ascended into heaven, and it's from heaven he shall come one day to establish his kingdom. Now, he switches, and he goes on, and he talks about the terrible destruction that will take place in that day when Jesus returns. Notice in verse 26. <clears throat> and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and they were drinking. They were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. 
And the flood came and destroyed them all. You know, it's the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on that day that the Son of Man is revealed. This is very sobering. The destruction, the terrible destruction that will be experienced the day that Jesus returns is clearly taught. It says, And judgment makes much more sense when we understand the price that Jesus paid so that we who repent and believe would not have to pay the price. There's a reason Jesus said, First I must die. Because I am giving my life as a ransom for many. For those who believe, I am paying the price for your sins. Do you not understand that there will be judgment and wrath because all sin has to have a price paid for it? See, folks, either we allow Jesus to pay the price for our sins in our place or we who reject him pay the price for sins on our own. I'm not a genius, but I can recognize a good deal when I hear it. If somebody else wants to pay the price for my sins, I, I, I praise God and humbly and throw myself upon God's mercy and say thank you. If somebody would say to you, listen, you need to go to prison for what you did and I'll go to prison for you. I don't understand that kind of love. I'm going to be up front with you. I don't understand anybody want to ever do that for me. But if somebody would want to do that for me, man, I'll tell you what, I'd think real hard about letting them. And that's what he's saying. But he's saying that just as it was in the days of Noah, just as it was in the days of Lot, and he doesn't even get into the particulars. So oftentimes we read through the Bible and we, and we read, oh, you know, in the days of Noah, we know that, you know, the thoughts of man were continually wicked. We know in the days of Lot that the sin of homosexuality was rampant and just the whole I- immorality and just a total disgust from God was present with that society. But I want you to recognize and hear what, they're saying, what he's saying. He said this, you know, it's just like in those days where life went on as usual. See, Noah's out building the ark for 120 years telling people, you know, you need, to, you need to repent. You need to turn from sin and you need to turn to God. You need to throw yourself upon God's mercy to be forgiven. And they all laughed at him. And see, what happens is if we predict dates, then when the date doesn't happen, then people think we have no credibility in the message that we just shared. See, Noah never told him when the, the, when the, the day of judgment was coming because he didn't know. He just started building the ark. When the ark was done, God said, load it up. He loaded it up. He got in it and God shut the door. And as soon as he shut the door, that window of opportunity for repentance was closed. But what he was saying was it wasn't even so much the evil of the day as much as it was the indifference of the day. Those who are indifferent to God, not just are evil intended, not just are evil hearted, not just are evil natured, but those who are indifferent towards God will be judged the same as those who have evil hearts and evil intentions. Those who don't have time for God. Those who don't even think about God. Those who don't think about spiritual things. Those who don't deal with their own conviction of sin. Those who don't struggle with why am I here and how did I get here and where am I going and what's life after, what holds for me after death. He's saying to all of us, he's saying, listen, you know what? Indifference will send people to hell as well as evil. Saying just like it was in those days, buying, selling, building, doing this. Hey, you know what? I don't got time for God now because everything is going really good in my life. 
I want to get an education. I want to buy a house. I want to get this new job. I want to, I'm looking for this promotion. I got this going on. You know, I want to get married. I'm so into my relationship. I want to get married. You know, now we got married. Now I want to have children. And when I have children, then, oh, you know what? And then this, you know, there's a million things that keep us from God. But he said, just like it was in those days, so shall it be in the day that Jesus reveals himself again. And what's even more amazing to me is the hardness of human hearts because I believe that Jesus Christ will return at the end of the great tribulation period and hell, all hell will break loose on this earth. And the fact that people could be buying and selling and living their lives and total disregard to the signs that were taking place and will be taking place in that generation were no different than the hard hearts of those who rejected Jesus and the signs in their generation. And no difference to people today as they reject God trying to get their attention in our generation. There seems to be one thing consistent. A hard heart is blind to God. How did Noah and Lot escape? They escaped by being obedient to the word of God. God said to Noah, get in the ark. He got in the ark. God shut the door. God said to Lot, you know what, you better, leave, you better leave Dodge, in this case Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, okay, he left Sodom and Gomorrah. He escaped by following God's direction. Listen, folks, you and I can escape the judgment and wrath of God for sin by following God's directions. What is God's direction to the kingdom of God? Repent, turn from sin, turn to God, trust in Jesus Christ his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, and believe upon him, and you shall be saved from the wrath of God. That is the gospel. That is why it's such great news. That is why it's good news, great news. You can't get any better than that. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Then praise God, you shall escape the wrath of God. Now notice as we go through, the extent of this is, is absolutely incredible. The extent of what happens here is that he, he says that, and they were eating and drinking, you know what? And, and they were all destroyed. And Lot, after Lot left, it says that, you know, fire and brimstone fell from heaven and destroyed them all. Men and women, those who reject Jesus Christ, God's sacrifice for sins, will be destroyed from the standpoint that they will never experience the forgiveness of God. They will be destroyed in the sense that they will live for eternity in a place the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire. They will be destroyed, but not destroyed that they will be annihilated, but destroyed from the standpoint that they will never be restored because the window of opportunity has been slammed shut. This past week I was sharing with some people and I told someone yesterday I ran into a dinner. I said, you know, I asked God to forgive me because... I don't know if I have the kind of broken heart that I need to have when I share the gospel with those who reject Jesus Christ. Sometimes, you know, it's like, do I really appreciate and understand the magnitude of their decision? Do I really appreciate an eternity, you know, away from God in a place called hell? Do I really appreciate, you know, I wonder if Noah cried when he preached the gospel. I wonder if Noah, when he was telling people, you know, I'm warning you. 
And they mocked him and they ridiculed him. And I wonder if he's kind of like me sometimes, that fleshly side that gets in the way where, you know, after listening to people mock you and ridicule you and make fun of you and call you names and persecute you, it's kind of like you just kind of go, you know what, God, I think I'm just going to work on the ark today. You know, I don't think I'm going to warn anybody today. I don't think I care enough about these people anymore today. And, and I, you know what, I just pray that God will keep crushing me and breaking me so that I never get that way. And I pray that he does for all of us as God's people, that we never get so sick and tired of people in our family, sick and tired of people we work with, sick and tired of our neighbors, sick and tired of teammates or classmates, that we never get so sick and tired of them because they are always on our case or they're always ridiculing us, that we lose the love and the compassion that God has for people. I just pray that that never happens. I know that it can happen, but I pray that it doesn't. Because the extent of God's judgment in that day, He will destroy them all. And only those in the family of God will be spared. The execution of the destruction will occur when the Son of Man is revealed. The blinders will be removed, but it will be too late to repent. And lastly, and it ties into it, the eternal destinies of men and women will be decided on that day. In verse 31, we're saying, on, on that day when Jesus returns, let not the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. And likewise, not let the one of them who is in the field turn back. Can you imagine? To be so in love with this world that Jesus Christ will display himself so that if it's nighttime in one part of the world and daytime in another part of the world, no matter what time of the world it is, people will see Jesus at that one moment in human history. And they're going to be so shook up about what they see that they're actually going to run back into their house to get some of their stuff. I mean, how crazy are we? It's like people that run back into their house to get something because there's a hurricane coming or whatever it is and they put their life at risk or in jeopardy. It's like, you know what? Stuff is stuff. And at the end of all of it, you leave it behind anyway. And if you're really nasty to your kids, you'll leave a whole bunch of junk behind so they have to clean it up. You know, get the dumpsters and clean it up and go, what are they keeping all this stuff for? They made so much work for it. So it just kind of balances out the inheritance. But, <laughs> but it's like, can you imagine? I mean, running back in to get their stuff. And that's why Jesus said, you can't love God and money. You can't be looking for his appearance and keeping an eye on your stuff. And all he has to do is say this, remember Lot's wife. That's a powerful verse. For those who know the story, Lot was told to leave Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife went with him and she turned around to look at she was missing something. I think sometimes, you know, it's been said and I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that Lot said to her, hey, you know what, honey, did we leave the light on? Now, I don't know. That could just be a really bad thing, but I don't think so. In the context, I don't think so. But the warning is, you know what, don't love your stuff. Love God. Love God. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life shall preserve it. And that's a message Jesus has been preaching over and over again. It says, I tell you on that night, there'll be two men in one bed. One will be taken into judgment. The other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two men in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. And we know they're taken into judgment because the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation chapter 19 verse 17 through 21 there will be a great battle of Armageddon. All the people of the world who are going to face God's judgment will stand in rebellion against Him and God will destroy them all. 
And he says, where will this happen? He said, this will happen where the bodies are. That's where the vultures are. And if you'll read that in closing, turn with me to Revelation 19 for a very sobering look at what God's kingdom will be like before he establishes it as we look in verse 19, verse 17. This great battle called Armageddon. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him, the judgment of God who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Hopefully that will break our hearts as to what lies ahead for those who reject Jesus Christ. In the meantime... This passage teaches that we can experience God's kingdom now. God's kingdom is in our midst. For those who repent of sin and trust in Christ, we can be God's people in God's place under God's rule even today. We can experience a taste of what God has for us in the future. The ultimate future as we see is laid out clearly in Scripture. And that will take place in God's timing according to God's predetermined plan. And we can be content with that. But in the meantime, everything's about Jesus. It's all about Him. We lift Him up before the world because there is no other Savior God will ever send that will save people from their sins. We share with them the reality of their need to repent. We share with them the reality of God's great love and the person and the work of Christ. We share with them their greatest need is to be forgiven of their sins. That God loved them and He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what we need to be doing. We need to get busy doing it and redeem this time wisely. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your Word. And most of all, thank You for Your Son, who offered Himself up a free will, a free offering, a gift to those who would trust in Him that we would never have to experience the wrath and the judgment for our sins. God, we thank you that we can experience a taste of your kingdom today for those who are born again by the will of God, not by our human efforts. For it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. A gift from God so that none can boast. God, I pray for those who may never have experienced your forgiveness, that they would just trust your word even here and now that clearly says repent and recognize that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he rose again from the dead, and receive him here and now as your Lord and Savior from the wrath of God. And we thank you and praise you in his wonderful name. Amen.